all the world's a stage, and all the men and women merely players. They have their exits and their entrances, and one man in his time plays many parts, his acts being seven ages. At first the infant, mewling and puking in the nurse's arms, then the whining schoolboy with his satchel and shining morning face, creeping like snail, unwillingly to school, and then the lover, sighing like furnace with a woeful ballad made to his mistress' eyebrow, then the soldier, full of strange oaths and bearded like the part, jealous in honor, sudden and quick in quarrel, seeking the bubble reputation even in the cannon's mouth, and then the justice, in fair round belly with good cap unlined, with eye severe and beard a formal cut, full of wise saws and modern instances. And so he plays his part. The sixth age shifts into the lean and slippered pantaloon, with spectacles on nose and pouch on side. His youthful hose, well saved, a world too wide, for his shrunk shrank and his big manly voice, turning again toward childish treble, pipes and whistles in his sound. Last scene of all, the ends, this strange eventful history, is second childishness and mere oblivion. Sans teeth, sans eyes, sans taste, sans everything. A quote spoken by the character Jacques in Act 2, Scene 7 of William Shakespeare's As You Like It. Saw of the World, a fictional adventure told in 100 episodes. Episode 95, The Hope We Compromise. A sound coming from outside the house, at first faint, then screeching. <coughs> Mrs. Willoughby heard it all from her bed. Ned! Ned! Wake up! Did you hear that? Huh? Mr. Willoughby was stirred only by Mrs. Willoughby's shaking. He'd slept soundly through the noise. There was a, 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 a high-pitched noise, and, and then, then a thud. I think it came from the pasture. Uh, uh, it's, it's nothing. You're hearing things because of that, uh, that, uh, uh, you know. Mrs. Willoughby wasn't so sure. She grabbed a flashlight, threw on some muddy rain boots, and tiptoed out into the back pasture. The flashlight, of course, didn't help much. It merely illuminated the fog closest to her. Nevertheless, it gave Mrs. Willoughby some semblance of security. Likely false security, but when you're lucky enough to feel secure, does it really make a difference whether or not that sense of security is valid or not? Willoughby's scream woke Mr. Willoughby. No one could sleep through that. What? What is it? Why are you causing all this racket? It's Ace's boy! 
Mr. Willoughby trudged over to take a look for himself. Three feet away from the base of their ladder was the pulverized corpse of Jimmy Mueller. Guess he fell. I always thought there was something wrong with him. Still think this thing's here for us to climb? Mrs. Willoughby thought for a moment, then said in the type of tone that settles an issue once and for all, Let's just leave the ladder be. Better not to chance it. Jennifer now revealed to those around her as the real Jennifer Dash. Real Jen Dash, please stand up. Please stand up. Didn't just want to go to Japan. There was a specific destination in mind. Inside the Hiroshima Prefecture is Momonaki Park, a lush forest known for its dazzling fall colors and enjoyable winter ski slopes. But to those in the know, the roots of many of the certain trees contained a certain chemical makeup that when mashed and boiled, created the key ingredients to the ultra-addictive drug Balaam. Some sort of residue contaminant from nuclear radiation left in the wake of World War II absorbed itself in these particular roots. It was a gold mine, and it was only here, right here in the Momonaki Forest in Hiroshima, Japan. To those in the business, Balaam had many virtues. It ranked in the top 10 as far as chemical addictive properties, offered a sublime cool haze buzz and high, and its side effects were minimal compared to other drugs in its category. There was an empire to be built off the back of Balaam, but the drug's discovery and early distribution was chaotic and bloody. Rival dealers and distributors descended daily on the tree roots, often adding their slit veins and blood to the uprooted veins of the sacred elms. This was the one real thing keeping Balaam from being a megaforce, an empire that could claw its way to the top of humanity's wretched king of the mountain pile. Nobody, as of yet, however, could claim victory. Constant rumors of ceasefires and mergers lasted only days at best, for the market was increasingly flooded with new ventures, new empowered mafiosos and black market gamblers, all hoping for a corner on the limited marketplace. One would suspect that the emergence of the third event, the latter's accompanied by harrowing fog in a universal communication dead zone, would lead to a period of relative peace in the forest of Hiroshima. This was not the case. Every kingpin thought now was the perfect time to strike. The canopies of the trees hid the streams of blood, it was nothing short of mercurial war. That is why it was so surprising, particularly to Mr. Smith, who felt he knew something of the fabled Balaam and its warlords, that his journey into the forest with Jendash was proving to be a silent and as of yet peaceful one. Jen, Smith, and Father Thomas had made landfall the day before yesterday. While Jen knew in theory where she wanted to go, she didn't actually know the exact coordinates. How could she? Amidst all her other travels, Jennifer Dash had yet to venture to the island of samurais and geishas. Somehow, Mr. Smith convinced the others that he needed to travel alone, 
to figure out how to best travel to the Balaam Orchard in Hiroshima. Father Thomas and Jen patiently waited on the boat for half of that day, but then got bored. They decided to travel out into the world. There were brochures, printed leaflets, everywhere. Neither Jen or the priest could read them, but the script was large, the message seemingly imminent. Much to their astonishment, they found one brochure stampled over on the ground that bore on it a photo, a particular photo of a ladder. A white ladder, leading up only into a mindless mist, floating four feet above the ground. What? Somehow, Thomas and Jen found their way into a cafe where an English club happened to be meeting. I've seen photos of five. Five? And that's just here. Imagine how crazy the world would be if we could share this on social media right now. Nah, it'd be over in a sec. Someone would solve it. Don't you think it's something more? Why? The fog, the, the loss of electronics, and now these ladders? I heard one guy say they were bridges. Like to Valhalla, the Rainbow Road, or... or Whatever. Or... Kimiko told me he just got back from Hong Kong, and the ladders are there, too. There was lots of talk like that. Father Thomas and Jen sat motionless, listening for the better part of three hours. By sundown, they figured they should head back to the boat. When they did, Smith was already waiting for them. I told you to stay here. It's not safe. Did you find it? Jen asked. Yes. We'll sleep and go bright and early tomorrow. Thomas, you'll stay here. Why? With everything that's going down, at any moment locals could turn. Anarchy is a breath away. There's a gun in the bag below the sink. Keep it on you. Make sure we have a boat to come back to. I can't risk this thing being stolen. Father Thomas gave a slight head movement, which he hoped Smith would take as affirmation. He seemed to, so good. The next day, Jen and Smith traveled by train, bus, and finally taxi. And that's how they happened to find themselves walking amidst the fog of Momonaki Park at dusk. So, uh, what do you think about me? Excuse me? Jen asked. Smith continued, a wry smile appearing on his face. Like, do you like me at all? Um, sure? Have you ever wondered why I'm helping you? Not particularly. I'd, uh, I'd, uh, I'd like a kiss. A kiss? Yeah. I want to know what it's like to kiss the most famous girl on Earth. Jen stopped walking. She smiled a little. A kiss? Aren't you a little old for me? Yeah, maybe, but I'm a good guy to have around. And, by the way, I'd take care of you. Good care. You'd be safe with me. Okay. Jen started walking again. Her smile disappearing. I'm serious. I'm totally... Serious. You're serious. Yes! I'm serious. Super serious. Super duper serious. Okay. Yeah, I'm super serious. 
And I'm funny. I mean, I can be. I'm not all serious. I'm not just serious business. I'm serious business, and I'm seriously funny. You're flirting. Is that what the kids call it these days? So, hey, guess what? What? Did you hear there's a restaurant on the moon now? Really? I guess I missed that. So, like, people are living there? Is that, like, a new project or something? Yeah, sure. But the buzz is that the food is great. But there's no atmosphere. <laughs> a big, broad, stupid grin and laugh from Smith. Oh, wait, I get it. I see. No atmosphere. Good one, Bucky boy. Jen gives Smith a gentle punch in the shoulder. The friendly type. Smith overreacts and throws himself on the ground. That one produces a small snicker from our leading lady. Smith bounces back up like a Jim Carrey caricature. See? I'm funny too. Serious. And funny. The whole package. Jen looks at her feet, smiles, and holds her cards close. Just one kiss. That's all I ask. Why, why should I? Because I'll give you this. From out of his back pocket, Smith reveals a small baggie of powdered balum. This is the variety you snort. You've never tried it, have you? Jen pulls in the secret agent. At this point, there is a kiss. Let's not focus on it. When it's over, Jen grabs at the baggie. Careful now, careful. Here, let me help. Smith pours out a little line on his forearm. <sighs> Jen's eyes pull back for a moment as her body experiences the high it'd been aching for for days on end. The man she nearly killed just became her beau. Just like that. She leans on him for balance. He holds her up, intertwining her fingers between his. This, Smith thought, was going smoother than expected. See? I'm a good guy to have around. Certainly not worth strangling. Jen laughs and pecks at his neck lovingly. Justice, where are you? Twenty minutes later, Jennifer Dash continued to strut strung out, clutching her newfound hero. Smith was pointing a pocket blue laser every which way but loose, through the fog, hoping to attract somebody's attention. Should be any moment now. What are we looking for? The guy we're meeting. <laughs> Can I... 
You know you have some more. You know the cost, Smith teased. And Dash paid her piper again. In return, he offered her another hit. With much less trepidation, Jen got a full suck in this time, and it edged her quickly towards unconsciousness. Her muscles lost all sense of gravity. Her legs gave way underneath her. She would have plummeted to the ground, maybe cracked her head open, but Smith was there to catch her. He petted her as he held her full weight in his grasp. Here, let's just sit here and wait. On the ground, Jen crumpled up and squirmed into Smith's lap. The laser, meanwhile, continued to pierce the eternal fog, hunting relentlessly for an ally. And an ally it found. Barely conscious, Jen found it odd what she saw coming through the mist. She expected Yakuza, some local with ripped jeans wielding a hammer above his head. But the figure, appearing through the haze, was nothing of the sort. The man, blinking a blue laser back at the twosome, sported priestly attire. He was all in black minus that little white strip around the neck, known among clerics as a cassock. He was a short, pudgy man. His goatee was multicolored, brown and blonde with white flecks and a smattering of red hairs here and there. Hey, 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 who is it? Jen whispered into Smith's ear. Can't you see? He's a priest. But why? We already have a priest. I have a surprise for you. The word surprise somehow didn't register to Jen. She stared blankly into Smith's eyes. Methodically yet delicately, Smith shrugged Jen off himself so that he could rise and greet the new member of the little Hiroshima party. The two men greeted each other with a manly hug thing, which ended in the priest slipping something into Smith's hand, but Jen couldn't quite see what it was. The next moment happened quickly. Jen thought she heard music from the heavens. It was, in reality, just three hungry baby birds crying out for a mother that would never return. Jennifer, Smith said as he knelt ceremoniously on one knee. I know we just met, but I can take care of you. I can make you laugh. And I think together, we can be a power couple and fall in love. Will you marry me? Marry you? Yes. I can take care of you. I'll keep you safe. It'll be okay. It'll be good. It'll be better than good. Father Thomas was able to track Jen and Smith to the outskirts of the forest. It was no easy task, under this unworldly fog, 
to both keep them within arm's length without being spotted, but somehow, thank the Lord God above, Thomas managed it. His taxi driver did a great job of tracking their car. It really was remarkable. But the forest presented a new problem. Thomas couldn't stay close to them, otherwise his footsteps would give him away in a sec. He didn't want to underestimate Smith, this industrious, agent, renaissance man, a man for all seasons, this cunning Mr. Smith. No, no, Father Thomas would not underestimate him. He didn't want to fall into the man's bad graces. Nevertheless, Father Thomas's task was simple. Keep Jen safe. He didn't trust Smith, and extracting Jen from Thomas smelled something rotten here in Denmark. But the forest had won, quite quickly. Thomas had only been tracking them three, four minutes, and somehow he was already lost. Lost in the fog, wandering, not knowing which direction he was going. Maybe he was walking in circles. Maybe he was walking east, west. Maybe he was going back to the parking lot. He was quite unsure of himself. And he'd been doing that now for over an hour. Father Thomas was wandering in the dark. That's why you brought me here? Jen muttered. Yes, and to show you, I can be your, your everything. Your protector, your comforter, your funny man, your, your provider. Jennifer Dash, will you marry me? A gold ring presented itself. Thinking was a struggle. Thinking straight was darn near impossible. There was, in Jen's mind, a sort of covering. This was the Balaam in full force, of course. It felt like a tarp over your mind. This reality, the falling of a thick, weighty tarp over the gears of your mind's eye, would be a fundamental blessing to many of us. We spend half our lives wandering, sometimes running, sprinting, to disengage from our troubles. The tarp covers all. It relinquishes us from the dreadful prize of worry. It safeguards us from the pain of remorse, of guilt, of shame. Think twice before judging a drug addict. Given the right formula of mental anguish, you yourself are but a tiptoe away. There is seduction right around the corner, and she is veiled from head to toe. Hear me and hear me true. Yes, as Socrates proclaimed, it is best to know thyself, but we whisper a second deeper truth. To know thyself is to know misery. So why not put a tarp over that misery? Cover it up. Here, now, Jen needed to break through the tarp. It was holding her back from thinking, from processing. The screen that was folding in over her mind needed to be beaten. Fight, old girl, fight. Bring it out. Push past it. Uh, uh, what about my reasons? It was an odd question. What about my reasons? Your, your, your reasons, Smith said. Your reasons for what? Jen screamed. At last, hope. Father Thomas broke into a sprint, praying as he ran that no branch or pebble fouled him up now. If he ran in a straight line towards the screen, he might make it in time. She was in trouble. Jen was in trouble. This was Father Thomas's time. He had to keep her safe. God, I pray. God, I pray. God, I pray. God, I pray. Use me. Get me there in time. God, I pray. I, I, 
I, I came here for the tree of life. I, I, I came here for the tree of life. Yes, yes, the tree of life! <laughs> Give me the rest, Smith called to the pudgy priest. From out and under his veiled robes, the priest pulled out a block of powdered balum, maybe three pounds worth. He tossed it to Smith. Still on bended knee, Smith waved the tightly wrapped balum block past Jen's nose. Marry me. Marry me and you'll have all of this. More. I'll lead you to the tree of life. We'll find it. And that was that. Father Thomas didn't run fast enough. Do you, Atticus Further, take Betsy Morrow to be your lawfully wedded wife? Do you promise to love Betsy? Comfort her, honor and keep her, for better or for worse, for richer or poorer, in sickness and in health, and forsaking all others. Be faithful only to her, so long as you both shall live. I do. The two were wed by the priest. Rings were exchanged. Father Thomas was too late. This isn't exactly how I wanted it to go, but it's good enough, isn't it? Give, give me more, give me more, give, give me more, Jen pleaded. Smith did. (laughs) Jen passed out, and then, through the mist, came Thomas. Jennifer! He leaped to her, holding up her unconscious head in his hands. What did you do? (sighs) Thomas demanded. We're married. It's okay. We did it in the sight of God. Smith motioned towards the priest. Thomas had failed again. Lord, am I here just to suffer? Why am I always too late? No one answered Thomas's prayer and cried. Instead, the screw turned again twisting Thomas to the breaking point. Bullets ripped through the air. Two people, one man, one woman, both dressed like the men in black, swarmed into view. Smith recognized the man immediately, Gandalf's murderer. How they happened to get there was rather a marvel. As it turns out, Lenore Kotnik was able to play the game just long enough. Wherein Smith threatened her with a stick, this party, trying to get an upper hand, this party being the ones who had been wanting badly to get their hands on Jen since they invaded the Texas town that heralded Jen as mayor, decided to use a carrot instead of a stick. What a windy, slippery road it had been. Lenore shared with them that one of her patients, the Slovene we know as Nate, had a rather serious Balaam addiction. Dr. Kotnik informed the group that Nate and Jen were friends and that sooner or later he'd introduce her to the stuff. Once the local supply of Balaam was zapped, seemingly in one day, the educated guess was that it had to be Jen. New money bags just blew her cash on the stump. Once she disappeared and the world went blank, Balaam was the only crumb this investigative SWAT team had left to search out after. Even so, it was radically lucky that the group ended up guessing that the most likely place Jen would end up was Japan. And even further so, radically lucky that one of their ears on the ground spotted Father Thomas at the English club the day prior. Once the agents on the field got wind that Thomas was in town with a young girl, the game was afoot. They kept eyes on the prize. 
but worried about this Smith character. When Thomas left to hunt Jen in the morning, these two agents followed him. And now, with the screams and Thomas going bonkers, sprinting into the fog, the two decided it was best to not wait any longer. Hence, they raided the group. Who's this? The woman in black pointed at the pudgy priest. Mr. Pudgy Priest looked scared and found himself without words. So the woman plugged him with a bullet to the forehead. Oh God, have mercy. We're taking you three with us. No one moved. Now! The man in black with a semi-automatic in his grip sent a series of shots into the air. Jen awoke to the sound. Who are these people? What do they want? You, carry her. Smith picked up his semi-conscious bride. Instead of a husband romantically carrying his bride over the threshold, Smith carried Jen as a prisoner, him and her both. It was a long walk back to the unmarked car at the edge of the forest, a death march. Thomas knew it. This didn't end well, least of all for him and Smith. They were disposable. It was the girl they wanted. Thomas, once again, had failed. Failed to save Jen. Failed to save her body. And, now Thomas feared, her soul. She can't confess. There's no time. She's going to die unforgiven. She's going to die a sinner. Would God forgive him for his incompetence yet again? At gunpoint, the three were handcuffed. Their hands cuffed behind their backs, attached to their feet in a reverse fetal position. Unceremoniously, the three were shoved into the trunk of the unmarked black sedan, like sardines. Sardines led to the slaughter. Number 50, Jennifer Dash. Have we been here before? Have we already had a number 50? No matter. The now is the now, and the now is the only time that we've ever had. Now, let us look this young maiden. Well, not anymore. Young, well, even that. Who knows if she's young anymore? And, well, not young, not maiden. That's just the thing, right? Who can say who Jennifer Dash is? No one knows who she is. Is she out to make the world a better place? No, not really. She's never done one thing that's actually helped out this sick, broken world. So she's no hero. Is she a devil? No, can't make that argument yet either. Classically speaking, the devil enjoys himself. Look at the squalor Jen continually finds herself in. But look logically at the situation, people. Look at the thing called Jen Dash. A hard look up and down reveal the pure facts of the situation. One, she's no purist. She's sold out her supposed virtues time and time again. We like our protagonist to be idealist. That's what made the movie Braveheart so good, right? William Walsh was a force to be reckoned with. He never caved. He fought until the bitter end. We all know this Jenny girl won't withstand anything close to torture for anyone or anything. She's a sellout. Two, she's no romantic. She just sold her singleness for another blow of Balaam. Three, she's no independent. Though she often floats alone, giving the semblance of someone who's a self-sustainer, she's a constant mooch, needing everyone and everything to kowtow for her just to get her to the next page in the script. Four, she's no dreamer. This is a common misconception. Oh, right, she's hunting for Leviathan. When's the last time you saw that girl actively working to find the beast? Sure, now, for the moment, the dream is the tree of life. That's nothing. She watched a VHS tape lecturer about it. Dreams to Jen are placeholders. She doesn't know what she wants, and so the nearest bright sign becomes a harbinger for her next epic quest. Think on that. She heard about Leviathan at a fast food joint while sipping on a unicorn thermos. And five, she's no survivor. 
come at me. True survivors are the ones that endure through force of will and the ingenious of their struggle. Jennifer Dash has never done that. Everywhere she goes, a plume of smoke follows. She's alive not because she endures, she survives because it's in her wake where the real danger lies. Poor Robin, the sad sack sacrificed in place of Jenny. Remember that name, by the way. Robin? Dash was always Babbitt's intended virginic blood. Not Robin. Mary Margaret saved Jen's life, and Jen refused to return the favor when given an opportunity. Not to mention the poor girl who died in the glass house in Jen's place. People die for Jen. That's what happens. That's how it goes. It's not that Jen's somehow mystically surviving. Nope. There's always a cost, and the payments are steep. Just not for Jenny Free Flying Finn. Lastly, Jennifer Dash is not worthy of our pity. That's the truth of it. If she loved Atticus, then she should have stayed around when he offered a couch for her to lay her head on. Or maybe you're inclined to feel bad for Jen because of her present predicament. Maybe you feel bad because she's not of sound mind. She shouldn't marry her pimp, but she can't help it due to Balaam's influence. Hello, wake up. Let me introduce you to the previous version of Mrs. Dash, a girl I like to call Naime, who was absolutely head over heels, drug-addled, and addicted to a special neo-druidic tea. She managed to escape the clutches of that vile drug, so she should absolutely know better. She can't claim naivete this time, or ignorance. She knew better, but chose this path nonetheless. Come what may, whatever happens to Dash, she deserves it. Remember, remember, she's not worth it. Not our hate, not our love. Not even our pity. And that is what makes her so pitiable. Utter darkness. In the trunk. Here. This moment. Trapped. Being taken to a place you don't know. Hope. Hope beyond hope. Smith is wiggling frenetically. Fantastically. Somehow he's unshackled himself. Next. You. He unshackles you. Finally, Thomas. Easy peasy, just like that. The three of you are free to move around in the trunk, all four limbs at your disposal. Smith, still in utter darkness, used his fingers to pop off a button from his shirt. He then whittled the button using his jeans zipper. He whittled it until it came to a point. Next, he flung off one of his shoes. Using the sharpened button, he sliced a hole into the side of it. The button now, having already doled and served its purpose, was discarded as a much weightier and worthy instrument was now prized in Smith's hands. A long strip of metal that once served as part of the innards of Smith's shoe was in his clutches. Okay, Smith whispered. This is gonna happen fast. I'm gonna pop the trunk open. The light will be blinding. All of us are going to have to face the light and roll out. As soon as you're out, you have to run. I'll face down these two, but you guys have to run. I'll catch up. Jen, do you understand? Can you do this? Are you capable? It'd been a while. The long walk out of the forest, well, in Jen's case, the long ride in her husband's arms, partially sobered her up. And now the 40 minutes or so in this bleak blackness had also given Jen time to self-reflect and come back into her own. She could run. Oh yes. And she could roll. On three. One. Two. Three. Smith jammed the metal strip into where he presumed was the back of the hatch. But it didn't budge. Instead, it merely made quite the audible noise.
Randolph's murderer opened the trunk. He saw the handcuffs undone. With precision and without hesitation, he shot Jen's groom in the face and slammed the door shut. Hey guys, this is Dante Stack. There are just five episodes left now. Can you believe it? Whew. Wow, almost there. Unfortunately, there's going to be no episode next week. It's just, I'm, I'm falling behind and I can't keep up with the weekly pace right now, so it's going to take me two weeks to get the next episode done. Now, in the meantime, I want to do a little something something here with y'all. Please, if you're listening to this, you know, within the first week or so of its release, quickly jot down your top five favorite episodes of Solve the World thus far. If you want to throw in your reasons why those are your five favorites, bonus points to you, and send them to me. You can write me at my email address, that's Dante Stack, D-A-N-T-E-S-T-A-C-K, at gmail.com. You can post it directly to our Facebook page, facebook.com slash solve the world podcast. Or if you prefer Twitter, you can send it to my Twitter handle, which is just at Dante Stack. So send those to me. I'll try to get all of them together and kind of see what everyone's favorites are and kind of put together an expansive list. Um, so that would be kind of fun and just, you know, something to keep us all together during the off week here as I feel like, you know, I want to constantly be working on it. I'm constantly checking the website these days um, and the Facebook page just because, you know, this is this is it, guys. This is the final moment, our final moments together. So please take part in that. It'll be fun. This episode, like every other episode of Solve the World, uses sound effects and music, all of which are appropriately attributed and listed on our show notes page, which you can find at DanteStack.com. So, once again, no episode next week. Um, so, see you in two weeks. Bye. (laughs)